0: I almost got kicked out of Bible college. Why are you cheering that? That's not a good thing. We're going to get back to that in a little bit later on the message. But guys, we've been in this series called Love You Wary, which is extended into March because I just, just have not been able to let go of it. It's been going on and on. It should become Love Arch now or something, which just does not sound as good. So we're still calling it Love You Wary. But we're on this subject of learning how these lessons from Paul, lessons from Jesus on love and life and how to implement those into our life, into our daily life. And so I'm excited to talk to you again about today about what Jesus is talking about. This way of love. Amen. Last week, I told you that Pastor Chris set me up beautifully for this week. That's true, but I also lied to you. Because that message is getting moved to next week. I almost got kicked out of Bible college. I've already lied to you. This is not going well. <laughs> it's going to get better. So this week I just felt God just give me this emphasis, this, this change, just you turn in the message. And that something else we need to talk about first before we talk about devotion. Hit that one more time and finish up this series on love you I think. And so we'll hit that next week. But today, we're going to be going to Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, whether physical or electronic, go ahead and pull that up. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And we're going to start with, we're going to read 25 through 27. I'm reading out of the NLT today, just so you know. Luke 10, verse 25. One day, an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher... What should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just take a second and invite God's presence in. Lord, we're just so excited, God, to be here in the house today. Thank you, God, on the first day of spring that the weather's been picking up and the snow's been melting, God, and that we've just been coming out of winter, God. Thank you, God, for this community, this place of worship that we can come and seek you, Father. Thank you, God, that we always can find you, that you're there and present and willing and just excited to be in relationship with us, Father. I just pray that this message would be spoken with clarity and to receiving an open heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get going in today in this passage, I need to talk to you about the Gospels really quick. Okay, and so there's four of them, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so something that might be helpful is that I kind of approach the Gospels like I approach an egg. That may sound odd to you. But when I look at an egg, I see one thing. An egg. But you also can break an egg down into how many parts? Three parts, right? And each is still part of an egg right right oh yeah we're here and so you have the egg shell that might protect and the egg white that fills and the egg yolk that's just rich and beautiful and all that's good and all these things but everything plays a part to the whole but when you still look at it you see the whole a couple weeks ago we looked at a passage that's very very similar to the one we just read but it's different And the difference was that you saw Jesus being tested by this lawyer, and you saw Jesus actually responding, but all the words seemed very similar. And so you might be thinking, what's kind of going on here? And the reason this is that why I want to emphasize this is that all the Gospels do the same thing. They point to the truth, the ministry, and the life of Jesus Christ. They reveal Jesus Christ. They reveal the good news. But everyone approaches it from the different perspective of the author and every author has a different background of different context some of them were disciples some of them uh just traveled with disciples some of them were physicians or uh just mere tax collectors or fishermen and so you have these people that came from different perspectives, preaching jesus christ and so they have overlapping stories and so you might have the same story but you might get it from a different viewpoint or a different context, or a different scenario, or a different story completely that's not even said in any of the other, written about in any of the other ones. And so today, we're not trying to harmonize the Gospels. We're not trying to sync them all up to understand them, because the truth still remains that it reveals Jesus Christ to us in his life and understanding who he is, okay? And so, a great way to approach this is like an egg. It's different, but still points to the whole thing. You can still point to each one and say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But it may give you a different context, a different view, a different understanding of a similar truth. Okay? So that's where we're going today. And so the context may be a little different. Um, Scholars say different things on this, that maybe it was the same story from a different viewpoint. Maybe it was later on because he quotes Jesus in his answer. And so maybe he studied Jesus and then just threw the exact same answer back at Jesus. Or maybe it's just a completely different scenario. We don't really know. But there is truth in Luke 10 that we are going to harvest out today. Amen? Turn to your neighbor and say, let's go. All right, here we go. Luke 10, verse 25 through 27. One day, an expert in the religious law stood to inherit eternal life. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say, and how do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, very similar to Matthew, here we have an expert in the religious law. And here he is testing Jesus. And the focus here, though, is on eternal life versus the greatest command of all. But the command is still the same, the answer is still the same. And so, the very first thing that kind of pops out to me, and the thing that stood out to the text this week is when I was studying it and looking at it, is that often this is the place where we will plateau our faith in Jesus Christ. And so, we don't get the man's heart intention. I don't know if he was coming to Jesus to try to trap him and, and to uh, uh, catch him up. I don't know if he was genuinely curious. I don't know if it was just a mere intellectual conversation. He was a man of the law. He knew the law. He knew the Torah. He knew all the books, the laws of Moses. And so was this just a, an exercise for him to, to have a, a conversation with a peer, to test somebody else's understanding? We don't know. But what I do know is that it is in his head. It's an intellectual problem to a spirit. It's an intellectual conversation about a spiritual condition. And he moves salvation to a mere transaction. What do I have to do to get eternal life? What's the minimum here? What's the thing that I have to do? And so it's so easy to approach faith in just our head. It's so easy to approach a spiritual interaction just in the physical and intellectual. And that will plateau your faith. If you merely come to Jesus, if you come to your relationship in God and just approach him in your mind, you're not going to get very far. You're not going to get the depth and the breadth of relationship that comes with a personable God. Amen? You know, I've never, in my personal experience, never been able to win somebody or lead somebody into a relationship with Jesus Christ merely through an intellectual conversation. There has to be a genuine interest on the other person's part, not to merely debate me or to ask me questions and understand what was the flood and how did this and how could somebody die or how the miracles, to understand it. There has to be a genuine interest because otherwise it just becomes a circular debate. Now, I'm not saying you should just throw out, it's like theology, who cares about it? You don't need to understand, just believe. No, like you should know your Bible. You should be able to understand apologetics and understand your theology and understand all these things. What I'm saying is do not leave your faith merely in your head. And so I love what Jesus does here. He's asked a question, but he throws it back onto the intellectual. What do you think? Don't ask me because I already know you have an answer. What's the truth that lives in you? Can we just wade through it and actually can you just tell me what you believe? Can you actually tell me how you're living your life? Can you actually tell me what's in your mind? How would you answer this? It's a great counseling tactic, obviously, for yourself. If you're approaching something, how would you tell somebody else what would you do and then just do what you said you would tell them to do? Does that make sense? So what do you think? And he answers well. We know this because he says the very exact same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 22. You can't get much better Then repeating what Jesus says. Come on, if Jesus said it, then how could that be wrong? And so he responds in the same way, in the same fashion that Jesus does. But Jesus presses into it from here. Luke 10 28 through 29. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Jesus shows that there's a timeline. He shows that there's something important about not merely just gathering information, gathering knowledge about God, but you must start practicing it. One of my favorite brands, just Nike, is just, just do it. If you would just do it. Just do it. Right. You've got the right answer. Now, do it. And so he approaches the intellectual and he tries to push into the matter into his heart. Are you doing what you're saying? It's almost like pop. You know, if you open up pop, there's a, there, you have to do something with it. Because there's nothing quite as bad as lukewarm, flat pop. If I go to McDonald's or Culver's and I drink pop and it's at the end of its cycle, it's a little bit flat, I will pour it down the drain. I'm not going to subject my, if I'm going to do that to my body, I'm going to get the good stuff, okay? It better be fizzy, it better make my stomach do things, like it better be good. I don't want flat pop. And so there's this idea is that when you get information about God, there's another practice about it. Don't make it just flat, don't make it just fall in your life, but actually do something with it. It should ingrain into you and become part of your life, not just live in your head. And if you try to approach your faith and your relationship with God just in the intellectual part of your brain, and you're Christian just in your thoughts, but it never actually translates into your actions, into your day-to-day moments, into how you live your life, your Christian life will be flat. So Jesus says, right, you've got the right answer. Now do this and you will live. 29. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? I wonder how different our world would look if the church and Christians did what they knew was right. There's not a way to calculate that, I don't think. But I know for a fact that our world would be different if we always did the things that we knew right. If we didn't merely just ask questions and try to make ourselves feel better and knew the bare minimum, if we actually did the things that have been ingrained into us time, year after year, again and again, since childhood, since Sunday school, if we did the things, life would look so different. The gospel is not an overly complicated thing. The law of God's not overly complicated. Jesus summarizes it into two statements. Love God with everything you have, and then love your neighbor too. And everything else is wrapped up in those two commands. Yet it's so easy to fall in this pitfall of trying to understand our faith or explain it away and synchronize it and make unity between it. And just, if you just have the faith and start doing the right thing, the next thing will pop up and you'll know where to go. Hopefully we can become doers if we just do it. If we would just do it. And so obviously this man felt a pressure. And I don't think it's from Jesus. Except that he was faced with truth. Right. Now go do it. Because he wanted to justify his actions. I would tell you that if you were trying to justify your actions... And I can't say this is a universal truth, but I know this is the truth in my life, is that there's probably something in me that has gone wrong. When I start, I was talking to Tom earlier today, my light in my van just went on that it needs an oil change two days ago. It's an indicator that something inside of it needs to be adjusted and changed. And when you start justifying your life, just if, well, you know what, if you were there, or well, you don't know what it's like, or well, you don't know the pressure I deal with, or well, you would do the same thing. If you start justifying, showing that something inside of you needs to be changed. And so the man approaches him and he says, he takes the intellectual, and Jesus is pushing him to put it into his life practice. And so he starts justifying himself Who is my neighbor? One commentary says it this way is that as soon as he asks this question, he begins to try to set laws and demands on the way of love. He automatically says that some people are worthy of love and some are not. What's the minimum? Who's the person? Is it just physical proximity? Is it within my religious proximity? What is it? What's the minimum I have to do to get into heaven? Just tell me what I have to do to get into heaven. And we're talking about the letter of the law versus the heart of the law. And the law came to show you all the ways you're supposed to interact. And Jesus came to show you what it means in practice. Not to condemn and not to, not to shut you down, not to limit you, but to release you into a life of freedom. And so this man takes his way. He says, what's the minimum? What do I have to do? Matthew Henry says that many ask good questions, intending rather to justify themselves to infor- than to inform themselves. Rather proudly to show what is good in them than humbly see what is bad in them. This last week, just in personal reading, I try to just keep my intake in and just try to push my spiritual reading for me is a spiritual discipline. Like Amy, my wife, loves avid reader. Any reading I do is because it's like force it upon it. OK, so I set open my book this week to just where I'm at and had nothing to do with this topic. I, I, at least in my thought head. Like the subject matter, the, I knew it had nothing to do with this. I was just reading it, and God brought me to this chapter by Eugene Peterson, probably somebody you've never heard of because I definitely don't talk about him every single week. And so he started talking. This whole chapter approaches this idea so beautifully that this is much less a quote and more of me butchering Eugene Peterson's words because I spliced them all together because we don't have time to read a whole chapter, But I had to get you the concept of what he's saying. So there's a lot of stuff that I put in here, but this is the heart of what this chapter is talking about. This is Eugene Peterson. He says, there have been ways, there have always been ways to a considerable number of people who are fascinated by the intellectual challenges posted by the Bible. If you have a curious mind and like to use it in demanding ways, you can hardly do better than become a scholar of Holy Scripture. There are others who come to the Bible with a moral practical be- a more practical bent. They want to live well, have their children and neighbors live well. They know that the Bible provides sound counsel, provides trustworthy directions for getting on in the world, which is probably assumed to involve becoming healthy, wealthy, and wise. Of course, there are always a considerable number of people who read the Bible for what is often called inspiration. There's so many beautiful and comforting passages in the Bible. When we are lonely or in grief or wanting some words that get us out of the humdrum, what is a better place than the Bible? It is entirely possible to come to the Bible in total sincerity, responding to the intellectual challenge it gives, or for the moral guidance it offers, or for spiritual uplift it provides, and not in any way have to deal with a personally revealing God his personal designs on you. To put it bluntly, not everyone who gets interested in the Bible and even gets excited about the Bible wants to get involved with God. You know, I, as a child of the 90s, I was raised to believe that quicksand was going to be a major threatening life event. Every day. Every person, every show that I watched, it was like up there with finances, anvils dropping on your head, and quicksand. I was raised to believe that it was going to be a daily problem as an adult that I'd have to go through. And I believe that approaching God as a mere way to comfort as a mere way to gain knowledge, as a mere way to just improve your life with its morals and uh, and wisdom, wise insights, is a way to just stick you in quicksand, to create this bog that just sinks you down instead of actually living a life with a God that is relational and wants to be in your life. He's not merely just knowledge. He's Personable, and he wants to know you. And Jesus is interacting with this man, trying to get it just out of his head, but into his life. You have the right answer, but now just go and live it. Don't just merely know it. But the lawyer tries to create processes and systems to justify when and how he should love. And Jesus is trying to break him past that. In your own studies, I would encourage you to go to Romans 7. And just read through Romans 7 for a, a better understanding, a more in-depth understanding of what the law is and how Jesus and the law interact with each other and how sin hijacked it. it it's just so good for what we're talking about today, but we don't have time to go there. So moving on to verse 30, Jesus starts, begins teaching this man on love. Who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replies with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. Verse 31. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Verse 33. Then a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. He put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. But if his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I am here. A couple of things that are obvious that just kind of stick off the page is that the first is that Jesus uses these characters very purposefully. He takes the one that's paid vocationally to be an agent of love, the priest. If anybody would show compassion, he shows the person that's supposed to be the hands and feet of love and how he walks by. And then he shows the Levite, the temple assistant. And this is the nation that was set apart to take care of the temple and to become priests. And so if there's anybody, if surely the priests failed, surely the Levites would stop and interact and help and be merciful. And yet you see the Levite look and then walk by on the other side. And honestly, I think maybe a lot of us fall into a place, I know in my own life, where it's not direct and blatant sin, but it's just easier for me to turn a blind eye than actually to jump in. You know what? He looks dead. He's probably dead. I'm just going to cross over here and just not care. And it's so much easier to walk by the car in the ditch or the mom that's trying to struggle and get all her kids and groceries into the car to in the door. Or to see that neighbor that's struggling to get the piano in their house. Or whatever it is that we just turn a blind eye to. But it's so much easier to just cross the road and to just turn a blind eye. And out of the coldness and the callousness of our heart. To trick ourselves, to justify our actions to saying, they've probably got AAA. They've probably, somebody else has probably already called. I'm too busy to stop. Somebody else will come along. By chance, somebody else will come along. And so Jesus uses a despised Samaritan. He's very picky in who he chooses here. And so to, I don't, we don't have time to go into super depth here, but the, the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was terrible. It's the worst form, the greatest form of racism that we have in the Bible not depicted on color of skin, or, uh, but it, on nationality, on heri- inheritance, on heritage, on a mixed religion. They viewed the, they viewed the Samaritans as this mixed mongrel race that had mixed and terrible views of understanding God. And so is this weird coin that, where they bolster the same God, but in different ways. And so there is deep hatred and open animosity between Jews and Samaritans. So much so that when Jesus is at the well and a Samaritan woman comes up to him, she's surprised that a Jewish man would even talk to her. He's surprised. You would ask me for a drink of water? So much so. Can you imagine the kind of hate it would require to be surprised to give a common courtesy like a hello to somebody? You probably can. And so we have the person that would be most hated, most looked down upon in their society... Positioned as the hands and feet of love. And so we see the Samaritan, and we see a couple lessons on love that the Samaritan shows us on how to treat our neighbors. The very first is that he teaches us that love is dirty. I don't know if you've ever had an emergency scene you've ever showed up upon or maybe a little kid that bruised their knee. But if you've ever had somebody else's blood on your hands, it's a hard thing to view. I've had times before where my kids were, uh, they busted their lip or something like that. And so I'm holding them as I'm rushing them inside and I look down like, where did all this blood come from? And it's from my kids. And so the Samaritan shows that he gets down, he soothes the wounds, he cleans them, he bandages them, and he gets dirt and grime in this other man's blood on his body. And he shows that love is dirty. He shows that love's inconvenient on his way, in a travel, he's on a donkey, he's going someplace. Yet, when you have an opportunity for love, it's not going to be convenient. You're going to be on your way to rest, on your way to work, on your way to get something done, and you might have to sacrifice one of your preferences for somebody else. And he shows that love is uncomfortable. Who got that man that was half dead and unmoving onto the donkey? The Samaritan. Who sacrificed his seat of comfort? so that that man could ride, and so that he would walk. We have no idea how far away an inn was. Was it down the street? Was it another five or ten miles? How far did he have to travel at the, the cost of his own comfort and allow the other person to ride? And finally, we see that love comes at a cost to yourself. Out of his personal bank, he gave and he paid for this man that could not give for himself. They had lost everything, even the clothes off of his back. And so he not only took care of him, positioned him in comfort, traveled with him, tended him through the night to make sure he stabilized, he paid for his day and any further expenses. Church, Jesus doesn't infer this, but as I was studying, I believe all of scripture points to himself. I believe that this scripture shows us the relationship that we have with Jesus. The law came as you were beaten and broken and shut down, and it pointed out all of your flaws. Romans 7 says the purpose of the law was to show us our sin. The Torah came, the Bible came, the laws of Moses came, and it showed us all the ways that we failed God. It showed us all the ways that we're separated and far from him and it left us beaten and broken because it could not bring us to relationship back with God. If it could, if we could get to God just by reading the Bible, just by understanding his rules, then we would never have needed Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus came to do something that the law could not do, which is re, which is give you new life. And so as you're broken, and as you're sitting, and as you're understanding the filth and the farness you are from God, Jesus comes, and he bandages us, and he cleans us, and he heals us, and he takes our place at a cost of himself. He pays debts that we cannot. He paid for your sin. And he promised, church, listen to this, that if you incur more debt, he's got that covered too. Amen. Come on. That's exciting. That's something to get excited about. That after salvation, as you continue to work out your faith, as you continue to work out the sanctification process, you're going to mess it up. You're going to be a bad father, a mother, a sinner. You're going to mess it up. But Jesus has paid for that too. And so Jesus is revealed in this story Who is your neighbor? I almost got kicked out of Bible college. I attended this small and intense gap year program that was discipleship based. It was We took classes in the day. We lived on this 700 acre ranch. There was a full functioning ministry, camping ministry. We do classes in the day and then we would go and practice it. And so we learned from the grounds up, whether it was cleaning bathrooms and preaching or scheduling games or organizing how to run a retreat in a ministry in an event. And so I did this for two years. And so it was very small. There was 30 students my first year. And I think my second year, there's like 35. And So very tight-knit community. I was right out of high school. And uh, I was single. And there are a lot of pretty girls in the class. And so there's one that I particularly just really became infatuated with and started to spend a lot of my time, a lot of attention on this particular girl. Amy, get out of here. You can't hear this. The dean of students, Dan Cooper, took a vested interest in my life. Not because necessarily dating was bad or anything like that, but because he knew that it was distracting me from the person I was trying to be. He knew that I wasn't in a place because he knew me. He knew I was not in a place for a relationship. He knew that what I needed most was to put God at the center of my life, and I wasn't there yet. He knew that I wasn't a man that was ready to be a husband, and so that means I was disqualified from dating. Dan Cooper took a vested interest in my life, and I ignored him. <laughs> hours and hours of free counseling in his office, in his living room, that he took time out of his day to counsel and to work with me and to deal. Dan, I have all these issues and problems, blah, 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 blah. Stop talking to Abby. No, I don't want to. Okay. And so one day, me and this girl were walking through the field on the way back from chores to dinner hall. And Dan says, come here. And he used the dad voice, like where you just, you just like, (laughs) like you just like, like where you drop stuff. And he said, listen, I've talked to you. I've given you warnings. I've showed you where this ends. I'm not going to have this. One of you is not going to come back from Thanksgiving break. Unless you change. That sobered me up so much. I treated that girl like she had COVID 19, like the original bad one. She walked in, I walked out, she sat down at the table, I got up, she hung out with those friends, I left, she had these chores and I switched them. I treated her like she had a plague. And it was the thing I needed. But you know how easy it would be for Dan Cooper to be like, oh, idiot. Stupid, like he's like, he's after this girl and he can just turn a blind eye. You know how much drama relationships cause? You know how hard it is to work with a teenager who's young and in love and like, I just want, this is the best, I can't imagine somebody else better and just infatuated. But Dan Cooper chose to wade into my life. He chose to take responsibility for my life. And I 100% attribute where I am today to Dan Cooper taking a vested interest in my life, so much so they would hug me and bandage me up to kick me in the butt. I needed somebody that would not just let me go by and figure it out on my own, but that would reach down, grab my hand, even if I resisted, and pull me out and say, you're not being the person that I know you can be. You're not being the man that I know you can be. This thing is good in its time, but is distracting you from who you're supposed to be right now. You need to prioritize and change your focus. Church. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 says, With the Lord's authority I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they've closed their minds, hardened their hearts against them. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure, eagerly practicing every kind of impurity. Verse 24, put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. We are all parts of the same body. Church, there are so many people. As Pastor Joe says, the need is great, the workers are few. I guarantee you that there are people in your life that are far from God, that their minds are dark, that they are stumbling around because they don't know what to do. Wracked with anxiety and worry. And frustration, suicide is on the rise, fear because of the war, and of COVID, and of politics, and all these things. There are people around you that are hurting, that need to know what you know. It is easier, though, to cross the street, to turn a blind eye, and to say, somebody else will get that. I'm sure somebody else will come along. You are positioned in their life. And the call is Do it! Who is your neighbor? Any person that you encounter that's in need, and you have the ability to show them love. A few weeks ago, me and my wife, I love diners. I can't get into it now, but just know I love diners. I was raised in diners. I love diners. I'm a diner person. And we're at a diner getting the good diner things you have double cheeseburger, blueberry pie, omelets, chocolate, uh, pancakes, all the good things for dinner. Because it was Sabbath, and we were going hard. <laughs> and so right behind me, this little, I don't know, one or two-year-old, they got a little feisty, threw their bowl on the ground, and it shattered, and the whole diner just goes quiet. And I just felt, I was, that kind of thing. Where I wanted to get up and do but I was like, I don't know where the brooms are. And I said, but she needs something. Right? Uh, but I don't, the waitresses are on the way. And I just felt this tension because I wanted to do something. But I didn't know what to do. I even said, Amy, what should I do? And like by that time, the waitresses had come and cleaned it all up. Maybe you know somebody in your life that is struggling. Maybe you know somebody, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, the people at school or college or your whatever, family member. You know somebody, but you have this tension of, I don't know what to do. I'm not most eloquent with words or I don't know how to explain the Bible or they're a proclaimed atheist and they're going to ask me questions that I'm going to look dumb or and in another person's life. You have three opportunities in your life where you're more likely to get a yes to an invitation to church. Easter, Christmas, and your baptism. When you invite somebody to those three times, you're more likely to get a yes than any time of the year. I'm expecting this house to be filled on Easter, and then I'm expecting it to be about normal the week after. Because people will come to church because they feel like they're supposed to. But what if there's somebody in your life that needs a touch and needs to hear about a loving Savior. They feel beaten and broken and lying down on the side of the road, bleeding out because anybody see me. I don't know what to do. We've created just very simple invite cards for you today. You can get them at Stonehaven on the black table. Just, they're bundled up in three, four, five sets of five or whatever. Take a set. Pray about it. God, I don't know, I don't have three, five people in my life. Ask God to bring five people in your life to invite to Easter service. And here's the heart in case you are questioning my motives. I'm not trying to fill the house just to fill the house, to have a large tithe or to have a full house on Easter. My heart is that you will most likely get a yes to Easter service. And I will tell you, spoiler alert, Easter service message is going to be about a loving Savior named Jesus Christ. And how to have a relationship with him. Why? Because you're going to be able to bring people in that normally wouldn't come to church. And they need to know about God. They need to know about Jesus. They need to know how to bridge the gap between where I'm at right now into a loving relationship with the Father that says you're more. There's more to your life. There's more. It doesn't just stop here. There's more. And so I'm so excited to fill the house. To spread the message. The good news. Mark 1 i have to bring this up again. Mark 1.1 1, 1 says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We have good news. We have the best news available. You could tell me I've won a million dollars, but it shows nothing in comparison to eternal life. You could tell me I have financial security or security in my perfect relationship perfect children but those things end in this life how do i gain eternal life love god with everything you have love your neighbor as yourself church we must be inviters we must be bringers the call is to be a doer and not only a seer to take the faith we have in our head and to let it express itself out into our daily life and onto our local community my prayer for us this season is that we would be an inviting and a bringing church. Amen. prayer team will come forward. Uh, John McGilvery is going to come forward because we have to move right from this into our annual business meeting. But as after John dismisses you, the prayer team is available. And so in the hustle and bustle, feel free to come up if you have something in your life you'd ask prayer for. I'll stick around the front if you want come up for prayer come up to me but church let's bow in prayer before john dismisses us father god this is a message father and a passage that we've i've preached from this pulpit god multiple times in the years i've lived here father god but it's so hard god it's so easy god to get stuck in our head god to know the right answer and to not be doers of it father i pray for two things right now god Lord, I pray that you would start bringing the broken faces to our mind. Who in our life, God? Who in our life, God, needs a touch of your love? Lord, as those faces settle in, God, I pray for a boldness to come out of us, God. And if not a boldness, God, a resolve to be an inviter. Lord, I pray right now that we would position ourselves, God, to not walk by, but to bend a knee and to interact with the broken people around us, Father. I pray, God, that we are vessels, that we are hands and feet of your love and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.